This episode is sponsored by Third Love. Did you know that most women change bra sizes an average of six times in their lives? Our bodies change, we grow, we exercise, we have babies, all sorts of things happen. Uh, And so finding the perfect fitting bra for any time in your life can make all the difference. Women know this about comfort and having a proper fit. Third Love bras were developed using thousands of real women's measurements, and they range from sizes AA to G, including signature half cup sizes. So no matter your body shape, no matter what's going on in your life, you can find the fit that's right for you. If you're not sure what size you are, or if you haven't been sized in a while, I've always heard you're not supposed to go more than a year without getting sized. Check out Third Love's Fit Finder. It only takes 30 seconds to determine the best size and style for your body. So what are you waiting for? You can say goodbye to slipping straps, to cup overflow, and to all the rest and try Third Love today. They stand behind their products so much that they're willing to let our listeners try a bra from the 24-7 collection for free. You just pay $2.99 for shipping. Take the tags off, wear it, wash it, really live in the bra the way you would any other one for 30 days and make sure it's your new favorite. If you love it, you keep it. They'll charge your card. If you don't love it, you can send it back for free. No cost to you. Go to thirdlove.com slash bookriot to get started today. That's thirdlove.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. It's episode 190. We're recording on Thursdays, December 29th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com and the vestiges of 2016. By the time you hear this, it'll be 2017. It will. I'm cozy in my bookish bat cave. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm laying in bed right now, uh, recording the show. We're about as... Uh, uh, hybrid is about as close to hibernating as you can do while still yeah. recording a, a podcast is what we're doing here. That's true. I actually used the word hibernating this week. A friend was asking about making plans, and I was like, "No, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I will be hibernating." And I'm I I am not as comfortable as you are. I'm not in bed for this, but I do have a fuzzy bathrobe and these poofy lobster slippers, and mm. I'm on my like nine millionth cup of coffee. Um, <laughs> And it's pretty excellent. So we're not going to do a, a news week this week. Um, neither of us could bear it uh, to talk about news. And there's not that much, actually, though I did see something we will be talking about on next week's show oh. up on Twitter today. Yeah, that's a little tease. That's what we call it. That's what we call a, a tease in the industry. Um, but we're going to do 2017 predictions, dreams, hopes, and fears for the bookish world this week. We're going What we think will happen, what we want to happen what if we could uh, wave our magic bookish scepter czar wands mm. uh, we could bring into existence. That's what we're going to do this Well, we week. are the book czars, so. Yeah. You know, we didn't do in the last show when we went about stories, like we didn't really talk about sort of the meta picture of the year in books in 2016. Any thoughts about that? I mean, hmm. was there any, anything we learned, any, any, anything, where, where are we right now? Uh, in the state of books and reading. What, what's your what's your take? You know, for all that, like the world was a garbage fire in 2016 and the regular news was just so newsy all the time and it was mostly bad. I just kind of am leaving the book world of 2016 with the feeling that not much really happened. Yeah. There weren't, yeah. uh, there was not a major movement born in books this year. Like we need diverse books. There mm-hmm. uh, were not like major scandals. There was nothing else found in Harper Lee's attic. 
And mm-hmm. there were no really big successes, which we've talked about every time we've looked at best-selling titles throughout the year and what book sales were doing. There were just no huge book stories of 2016 mm-hmm. in the in terms of like this the stuff that you know when we're in our dotage, sitting in our rocking chairs, reflecting on our lives and publishing. I yeah, we're like, ah, in 2016, X happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, X, right. Right, yeah I, right. I, I just don't think there's much there. There were many good books, but I didn't think there were as many good books or that uh, the proportion of awesome books to you know regular books was as high as it's been in previous years. I'm... I, I don't know. Also, maybe my just like, bleh, oh yeah, about yeah. 2016 bled over into my feelings about publishing's 2016. But I just, I, I just feel like it's kind of it was it was a year. Books were published. People read them. Authors did things. Mm-hmm. Some good, some bad. Publishers did things. Some good, some bad. But like, I'm, I'm not taking much away. What about you? Um, I kind of feel the same way. Like, yeah, the, there were so many headline grabbing stories in the general world of news that it kind of felt hard to take anything too, not seriously is the wrong word, but give it too much emphasis that happened in books this year, especially where there wasn't a big story um, necessarily. So it was kind of a whole steady year. I mean, we saw from the Pew Internet research and some of the book sales things, like book sales were up a little bit and that was about it. I mean, that's the kind of the, the story. It was a, a, a year of moderate growth in the industry side um, on the actual title side again it was kind of an underwhelming year with not underwhelming it was kind of an average year i'd say though we got the underground railroad like as i said before i think that one's going to stick around Mm -hmm. in our our minds for a while so that that might be one that we remember that that came out this year um that sticks out but yeah i think it was a pretty pretty typical year yeah so far and Um, i was thinking as you were saying that that there wasn't really a a big awesome story but that also means there wasn't a big bad mm-hmm. story we didn't spend the year panicking about what ebooks were going to do to put the publishing industry this wasn't 2012 yeah. um it was no. it was kind of a hold steady as you were saying and i think man maybe we needed a hold steady year the rest of the world yeah, was enough. <laughs> maybe maybe we did need a hold steady year that's interesting i i don't want to i don't want to steal my own thunder for some of the stuff we're going to talk about but we'll bridge off like some things shouldn't hold steady right um, and some things probably <laughs> won't and uh, some things, you know, should go one of two ways uh, in the future. Let's do our first sponsor. Uh, PRH Audio is back. It's the time of year that people are thinking, it's a, it's a good, it's one, one is a good time. You know, start the system over January 1st. We're thinking about making our lives and ourselves and our relationships and our work life and our health and everything better. So you might think about starting the year off with some inspiring audiobooks from personal improvement to spiritual listens to health and fitness advice. Audiobooks are a great way to digest this stuff while you're while you're on your go. Your life doesn't stop. You, you don't get a whole bunch of new time on January first to do stuff just because you want to. So you got to find ways to work this stuff into your life. And audiobooks, as we've said a million times, are a way to do that. So you can go to PenguinRandomHouseAudio.com/selfcare for listening suggestions. There'll be a link in the show notes. A couple of things they're suggesting. This just came out. Um, and I don't know how to say this guy's last name. Books for Living by Will Schwalbe. Schwalbe? I'm not Schwal- sure either. S-C-H-W-A-L-B-E. I even tried to look it up before I did this read, and I got no help. Um, so that's if, you know, remembering, reminding yourself, uh, reinforcing how books can help you itself. So that's sort of a meta self-help thing, like things that help you help yourself. Uh, the Power of Meaning. Uh, the Case Against Sugar as one book they're talking about if you're thinking about changing your diet. 
a lot of new studies about sugar is just super bad for you in so many ways. Um, and this is a way to think about, is that something you want to take on that pay more attention to? I think mindfulness seems to be the big, um, uh, uh, I don't know, buzzword of the year on mm-hmm. a lot of the self-help books that we're seeing. And I don't know if that sounds right to you. And a lot of it is just paying attention to how your life is put together um, and seeing that sometimes that paying attention can can cause you to change or notice things that need to change. So lots of great books there. Um, they've got a lot of great suggestions. PenguinRandomHouseAudio.com slash self-care. Yeah, they have one of my favorite books of 2016 on this list. Uh, it's On Living by Carrie Egan, which I think I talked about on one of our holiday recommendations shows, mm-hmm. but she's the one who was the ho- has been the hospice chaplain for a couple of decades. And she's sharing stories and experiences that she's had sitting with people and their families and their dying moments as uh, a kind of guide to how we think about the ways that we go about living our lives. It's really beautiful if you're looking for um, an inspiring read to start your year, or in this case, an inspiring listen. Okay. So, um, let's, let's do, let's do some of the news we're expecting. So these are things that could probably would happen that are coming this year. Big books. We talked about some of the big books are coming out, but I think we might hear about some, uh, we might hear about some long awaited books. I think, uh, a little guy named George RR Martin. I Mm -hmm. think there's a real, I think, you know, we're at some, I don't know if the, the title will actually come out this year and where it can be in your hot little hands. But I think we're going to know this calendar year about the next um, uh, trilogy, the next installment of the Song of Ice and Fire. I think that's a pretty safe one, actually. As as dumb as that would have bet as usually, I think it's less dumb this year to say, okay, I think this is the year we're going to get the next installment. Because I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's been since we launched the site that there's been a new Song of Ice and Fire book. Yeah, you're I, right. I think right before. I, the summer before uh, we launched the site in 2011, I think was the last time we got a book, or maybe even before then. So we've, you know, we, we that's how long it's been in the world of books and reading um, since we've got a new one, and we've gotten some hints from him that that's coming. So I think if you're if you get better than even odds from someone who bets you on these sorts of things, uh, I would take them. I'd take better than even odds on that. What what do you think? You think that's right? Yeah, I think that sounds right. I wouldn't be surprised if. Well, I guess I could see them doing it a couple of ways. So he's with Penguin Random House, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I could see one very foreshortened situation of like in ah. August, finding out that the next book is coming out in September or October and like order it now. It's coming fast. Woo. Um, I think more likely is that there will be a huge run up to it. And so probably... I would guess just given the cycles of book news that like by the fall of 2017, we'll have heard probably in tw- sometime in 2018, the next George R. R. Martin book is coming yeah. out. And it'll be one of those, like, they'll be making announcements about pre-ordering it in Barnes & Noble for like nine months before it comes <laughs> out. And they'll it'll be all over the place. And then that's plenty time for rereads and for rewatches of the show and for every oh, mystical that BuzzFeed yeah. can think of and sort of that long lead anticipation. I think that's reasonable. Um, we know that we're going to get Dan Brown. Yeah, fall of 2017. We're very excited about that. Um, I have been trying to think about what I think J.K. Rowling will do in 2017 because we know she's, I, gonna she's always going to do something. Yeah, <laughs> you see on Twitter the other day she said she's working on two books and one of them is done. Oh, and I don't. They, we know nothing else about it. Uh, huh. But that's interesting. I did to, not to see that. See. I, don't, I don't know yeah. if it's another Galbraith situation or it's her under her own name, but not in the Wizarding World or 
you know, really you could play J.K. Rowling Mad Libs with it, with whether it's her name or not, whether it's in the Wizarding World or not, whether she actually wrote it or not, or with somebody else. Like mm-hmm. all those tumblers, um, you can adjust and get a lot of different permutations. Is it a novel? Will it be a play? Yeah, yeah I could. Uh, is it a Fantastic Beast tie-in type thing? Um, that that's interesting too. Maybe it's uh, a I video think, game. Like that. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. We, we could be due, and um, again, check off your bingo cards. We could be due for both Marilyn and Tony mm-hmm. to make an appearance. I was thinking about I think that. Those, either of those things, it's about the, the timing is about right in terms of the recent cadence. Um, I think also kind of like Martin, I think we're going to get news about the last installment in Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle series. Um, we got the news. That, I don't know if we talked about it on this show, that Lin-Manuel Miranda is yes. going to be adapting that um for movies, but also with a, I guess, ancillary TV show. It's a little unclear how that's going to be put together, but that's going to be a major production and storyline that we and the rest of pop culture is going to be following for what sounds like the next five to 10 years. Um, so probably we'll get the first rumblings of what's going on uh, with what's going on there. Um, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about the books we're looking forward to, um, so we're not going to rehash that. So it's not really a specific title predictions we're looking for, but um, other things like that. Okay, so here's one. Do you? And I, I don't want to go into my rehash my ebook pricing <laughs> rant, but I just feel like I just feel like this current situation where for a lot of front list paperbacks that they just cannot be cheaper than ebooks for that much longer. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know what's going to give, but. I just can't see this being the new status quo where you can buy a Kindle version, uh, you know, a Kindle version of a, a paperback for nine ninety nine, and then the paper, the physical version is 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 eight forty seven on Amazon, and you get it. I just don't see how that can be a way. Uh, that that just doesn't feel like the way forward to me, and I, I don't know what's going to go on or what would need to change, or if Amazon changes its uh, pricing strategy or what exactly is going on. But I just feel like that doesn't seem tenable as an ongoing process to me. Yeah, I agree. I think it needs to change and it doesn't feel like progress at all. This sort of industry-wide resistance to eBooks and the insistence on print um, and using the weird pricing structures, comparing print and uh, comparing paperbacks and eBooks, especially to drive price conscious readers toward the print edition, um, especially when it's not urgent. You know, there's that, instant gratification of an ebook purchase. Um, but if you're going to save a couple of bucks and you don't need it for like a few days, especially with Prime, uh, if you don't need mm-hmm. it till tomorrow, <laughs> you can save a couple bucks right. and wait, and wait yeah. one day. It just, uh, the like my future girl instincts don't like that pricing is looking this way. I don't know how much longer it can sit this way because I don't think ebooks are going anywhere. And no, certainly no. the more integrated into our lives all of our devices become, the more people will be reading ebooks. And there was that big adoption of them a few years ago, followed by the mm-hmm. sky is falling, publishing, you know, running around like chickens with their heads cut off, worrying about what was going to happen to the future of publishing. And it just feels like we're at this weird stalemate where something has to give. And mm-hmm. I would like to see ebooks go back to reasonable prices, which I think, you know, if we're talking about an ebook of a front list title, like, for a hardcover that you're going to pay 27 bucks for, the ebook should be 9.99 or less. But if you're talking about paperbacks, like a 16.99 paperback that's discounted to 9.99, I want that ebook for 5 bucks, maybe 6. Yeah. I am not quite that low, but I, I it does feel like you need a few dollar discount 
for mm-hmm. the paperback. Like, so I was like, I was looking at, I think I was tweeting about this. Like I was looking at the uh, hardcover of the underground railroad and this is a big literary fiction title and Amazon is discounting it within an inch of life. So don't get me wrong here, but the hardback was 1679 or something like that. And the Kindle version was 1499. So it was a less than two bucks difference between the hardcover and the That's- ebook. Bonkers. Which which seems insane to me. Like I think twelve ninety nine for a Kindle version of a of a big time AAA front list hardcover seems reasonable to me. And then seven ninety nine for paperback. Like give people two or three bucks off for the digital version. I think that that feels to me it's not a deal, but it feels like the value proposition is reflected in the pricing there to me. Mm. Um, so I don't know. And then. The, the one that goes hand in glove with that that I had on my list of stuff to talk about is do we continue to see the erosion in ebook reading or does it stay steady? Is it is it really, as we sort of suspect it is, as tied to the pricing structure and the relationship between not just uh, ebook prices on a title by title by themselves, but in relation to paperback and hardback prices? Like that'd be that'd be something interesting to see if they keep this pricing structure. Do we see another? Two, three, six percent drop in market share for ebooks that we've seen over the last couple of years. Does it stabilize if they keep things the same, or if they kind of rejigger the pricing structure that it's like something that rational humans could understand? Then do we go back? Maybe there's a little bit of a lift in ebook market share um, in the in the book buying public. So. I, I don't see a way you can make a prediction about one of those without the other. Yeah, um, I, at this point. I think they're very tied to each other. And so the answer to what will happen to ebook readership is dependent, in my mind, upon what happens to ebook pricing against print edition pricing. Um, mm-hmm. Even just anecdotally, the people in my life who are what I would call casual readers, um, especially as Amazon Prime has become like as they've spun all the additional benefits into Prime are saying things like, oh, I'm, you know, I was sitting having drinks with girlfriends and they were like, I'm reading this great fantasy novel. I'd never heard of it. When she said the title, I didn't know what it was. Um, but she found it on the list of free ebooks that are included with Prime for Kindle. And that's a rotating library in the same way that they're mm-hmm. rotating. Um, I think it's 50 free audiobooks at a time on Audible for uh, Amazon Prime members. And some of those are great front list titles and some of them are small things that you've never heard of but someone who's holding their smartphone or their tablet and they want an impulse ebook or an audiobook immediately is has options that allow them to be price conscious and to find something that's relevant to them and Amazon's making that possible um so i think that's happening those folks are picking up like or i'm reading this romance that was 2.99 and i had never heard of it and it just came up in the kindle listings and you know we know that books become at least amazon best sellers because of price drops or features on kindle unlimited or kindle uh recommended lists so I think that those prices are very connected. And if they if we stick with this stalemate, if we keep seeing paperbacks that cost more than the ebook edition, ebook readership will hold steady and might decline a little bit. It seems to me that that's mm-hmm. what publishers want. Like it like in my in my mind, the like publisher offices are filled with versions of those like the two cranky old muppets that sit up in the um that sit up in the yes yeah right yeah, i can't like, remember those dudes names i yeah. can't remember them either but they're just like sitting there scheming and complaining about everything and it seems to me like the those guys of publishing are like 
maybe if we just sit here long enough making ebooks less and less appealing, ebooks will just go away, which I don't think is going to happen. And I don't think that Amazon wants that to happen or is going to let it happen uh, with their readership. Yeah. But it just, I mean, it's publishing. It, this problem is going to take way longer to solve than either of us wants it to. I mean, that's the other thing, like with the pricing, like has it ever successfully worked where an industry has priced new technology so that the old technology could be defended and have it worked. Right. Like, is that just a story? I just don't feel like that's a story that happens in the worlds of technology and, you know, t uh, progress when it comes to delivery or speed or convenience or pricing or manufacturing. I just don't know of a story where like, uh, you know, the horse, the horse industry kept the, the price of model T's high. Right. Um, so that they could protect the, the, their buggy whip sales. I just don't feel like that's something that's worked. And I'm, maybe there are counterexamples, and if there are, I'd sure love to know them. But it just feels to me like delaying the inevitable. Um, and when you're delaying the inevitable, I, I just don't trust publishing to also be then be preparing for the future as they're doing right. it. Right, yeah. That's... Like it's one thing to protect your existing profit stream while you're trying to prepare, but it doesn't seem like, especially, you know, we talked about in our show last week with, uh, the 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 woman who's in charge of Penguin UK saying we bet too much and we're going back to print. That doesn't sound to me like future proofing your industry. Uh, that that sounds to me like we're giving up on the future and we're gonna hope that print is the thing and whatever. So I I, I just I'm I'm unsure about that. I have to say. Yeah, I think delaying the inevitable is a really good phrase there. And the problem with delaying the inevitable isn't just that you're existing sort of in a false reality in the present, but that you're not preparing for what happens when the inevitable thing that you're delaying does arrive. And right. I just, I don't believe that, I don't believe that there's like a six month plan where somebody was like, let's just delay this inevitable thing for six months because we need six months to develop X thing. And then mm -hmm. at the end of the six months, we'll do what we should do with ebook pricing and we'll be ready for this thing. And it's, it's taken us longer than it should have, but we'll be ready for it. It just seems like this is the delaying of the inevitable. The inevitable thing is going to occur. And when it occurs, publishing is going to be like, what do we do now? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that speaks to one of my other things I had on my list is I feel like we're always on the there's a joke in the computing world that next year is always going to be the year of Linux, you know, as a mm -hmm. desktop arbiter. Always next year is the year, next year is the year, next year in the year. And we're kind of that way. We've been doing that with a little bit of ebooks, but I'm wondering at this point if next year is the year going to be. I've been thinking about this for some subscription services or uh. also then, like you mentioned, Kindle Unlimited, which is a subscription service to pack in or things like Wattpad. Like those feel like future plays to me that the, you know, the big, the traditional publishing industry doesn't have any toe in as far as I know. Maybe Macmillan has a stake in Wattpad. I have no idea they could um, or something like that. But like, are one of these years, is a Wattpad book going to be a breakout hit? Or is, you know, Kindle Unlimited, the authors are going to get on board or some other sort of tangential side disruptor kind of business? Because we haven't had one yeah, um, that's... outside of Amazon in the world of books and reading. Really, have we? Am I missing something? No, I mean, that's, yeah. I think for a little while, people thought it was going to be the Oyster Scribd services, yeah. you know, the ebook um, subscription things, but it wasn't. And that's really yeah. what I'm concerned about for publishing is like the thing about getting disrupted is that you don't see the disruption Mm -hmm. coming. And publishing is, uh, it's been more than a decade since Amazon really started doing what it's doing in publishing and publishing is still so reactionary. And I think publishing lives in that position of 
being very reactionary rather than being prepared and offensive. And mm-hmm. th- that worries me too of, is anybody sitting around thinking about like, if I were trying to disrupt publishing, what would I be coming up with? If I were trying to mm-hmm. like, someone will disrupt Amazon someday. What's that going to look like? Yeah. Um, right. What might we be doing for future proofing? But also, could we make our own industry stronger? Could we disrupt ourselves in some way um, and use that as a response to the things that publishing doesn't like about Amazon or the frustrations of that very complicated relationship? Um, but that's that's coming. I don't know if that big disruption will happen in 2017, but it feels like we can't go, we won't go much longer in the development of technology in general and publishing in specific without something rocking the boat in a meaningful way. Um, it's like we were talking with our coworkers a couple of months ago about the different social networks that the, that we use to yeah. promote book riot. And someone was like, well, what's the next Facebook? And we were both saying like, well, that's the thing is no one knows. Like we won't know no until knows. the next Facebook comes out. There have been plenty people attempting plenty, you know, new sites that have attempted to do it in the last several years, but nothing has stuck. And something will, um, yeah. something will out Amazon, Amazon, something will out publishing, publishing. Um, and I want to, I want to start thinking about, I want to think, I think I really want to see publishing start thinking about what is that going to be and how do we keep doing what we're doing really well in response to it? Yeah. I hope people in publishing and traditional publishing, the big are reading Clayton Christensen's the innovators and in, innovators dilemma, which is about this. Like when you have a big profitable business, it's very hard to get into a mindset of let's destroy this business or let's do right. the next thing because like I've got this big thing that I built. And e- even our little company, we think about that sometimes. Like we're a company that was originally built on Facebook, right? Like Facebook mm-hmm. likes sharing was the thing that made the business possible. But as that changed, we had to do other things. We had to do podcasts and newsletters and we got other stuff cooking, you know, and, and trying to keep up and realizing that your old way of doing things, even though it can be hugely prob- profitable, you know, nothing lasts forever, but especially when you're in a space like this. I mean, even I'm trying to think what's the most defensible industry you could possibly be in over the last 50 years. You would have said like the oil industry, right? Mm. Well, look at what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Like even those guys, um, given enough time, have to adjust somehow. And it doesn't seem like what big adjustments have publishing really made. I, I just I, I think you could count them on, on on one hand, maybe even one finger, maybe on less than that. <laughs> um, you know, William Gibson said. Um, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed, which mm-hmm. I always think is an interesting way of thinking of an industry. Like, where is the future already here in, in books and reading? And I do think that you'd, you'd need to look to those places like romance self-publishing, right? Yeah. Like, that's one area where I think the the market and the reader communities and the modes of distribution and the modes of people getting paid, that feels like a possible future where self-publishing and speaking of the year of it's always the year of next year, like the, the boogeyman of self-publishing has, has kind of gone away, I think, as self-published titles have flooded the market and people have realized the value of marketing and promotion and professional editing and distribution and all that stuff. But there are corners in which it's a huge part. Um, we talked about it on the show a while back, like the significant part of the romance reading world that self-publishing has become. And because self-publishing and digital media line up with the consumption patterns of romance readers and romance writers. They read a lot and they write a lot and they charge less money. Um, I think that's a possible future. I think N.K. Jemison, Patreon, we talked about that. That's mm-hmm. a possible future or a, a, one of many possible futures when the, when the topography of books and reading um, where these are all ways of cutting out or cutting down the middleman, which Amazon is trying to do. They're trying to be a cheaper, um, more efficient, faster 
maybe lower quality, maybe not middleman than the publishing industry itself is because they are, and, and to some degree, they, they do value add, but they they uh, shepherd the manuscript from the author to the reader um, and charge money for it and get a piece of the action. So anything that attacks that middle process between uh, author and reader, I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. that. Sounds like that feels like it could be the future. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah. that attacks that middleman is a possible future. Yeah, and future. you mentioned Wattpad a couple of times. That really feels like the future to me. And it's, I think it's harder for readers in the U.S. to think yes. about or even to realize the scope of what Wattpad has done. But because the content is free, um, because it gives the readers direct access to the writers and vice versa, folks who are you know not yet published get access to people who want to read their work for free and are happy to give them feedback. You basically get a workshop slash focus group um, for taking the risk of sharing your work in public. That's one thing um, that helps self-published writers or helps up-and-coming writers improve their craft without having to get an agent first, without having to jump through all of the hoops of publishing. But the bigger story of Wattpad is how... uh, significant their audience is in developing countries that like we talk about parts of the u.s as being book deserts because there's not a bookstore for like 25 miles like these are places where there aren't bookstores within a day's drive but the internet exists there and they can access free digital book content through wattpad on their devices and they uh, readers are doing it and they're doing it by like to the tune of millions of Mm -hmm. ebooks read there through wattpad every year um and that's a story not just about accessing, making books accessible in parts of the world where they have been less accessible, but as the as the internet enables this wider conversation and the mixing of people from all kinds of groups and experiences and walks of life, I think we're really starting to see discussions about social justice and discussions about accessibility and what that really means mm-hmm. start to reach into all industries. And one place that publishing, I think, has been very blind is in the insistence on holding on to print and holding on to these paperback and hardcover editions is how much opportunity there is to improve accessibility for readers who need an audio book or for readers who need an ebook so that they can change the font um, for anyone who's visually impaired, for anyone who might be housebound, uh, that there are some social justice and accessibility parts of working on improving the future of delivering digital content. And to turn your eye there, to do that very well would be not only good for business, um, it's the right thing, it's good for business, but also quite newsworthy if you do it in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, we're just like, well, but we'd rather sell you a paperback. Right. Well, and you know, you've seen something similar happen in telecommunications in parts of the world that didn't have landlines for telephones and, and the infrastructure required to get a landline skipped over the whole generation of technology around landlines that existed mm-hmm. in the U.S., for example, for 50 years and went right to cell phones because you can deploy them without a whole bunch of infrastructure. Like you need some towers and, you know, Facebook's doing drones with Internet on it. Like you can deploy easily and cheaply if you have internet connectivity. And that's what's going on here a little bit. And that's one place where it's like, that's a classic disruptive case where, you know, we, we all, we, I mean, we also get feedback from readers too. when I say how much hardbacks are here, but actually books are pretty cheap in the U S and they're much more expensive in a lot of other places in the world. I remember uh, having Mavish Murad on for reading lives and talking about what it was like to try to buy books in Pakistan. Mm. Um, and, you know, she'd have to drive across and she couldn't always get anything and things were expensive. And, you know, but she had this bootlegged Kindle that wasn't technically supposed to work um, in Karachi, but she had registered it in like South America and brought it over so she could buy stuff like basically it hacked the system and the digital connectivity allowed her to do that. So 
yeah, that's one place where it does feel like that's a possible future. And it may not be the possible, it might not be a future in the U.S. And the future also doesn't look the same in every part of the world. But you can see a place where you get a huge media company that's built around text storytelling. Um, and sometimes it's helpful to say, to just take the, the old industry's name out of the equation. Mm -hmm. You're trying to imagine right. the future a little bit. Don't call <laughs> it put, I mean, that's it's text distribution of stories um, and have it look a little bit different. I think that that's, that's really possible too. Um, I do want to talk about audiobooks uh, in a minute and, and Amazon some more, but let's do the next sponsor, uh, our, our last sponsor for the show. And yes. then we can, we can get into that. Our next sponsor this week is The Girl in Green by Derek B. Miller. He is the author of Norwegian by Night, which is a novel about two men on a misbegotten quest to save the girl that they failed to save decades before. The Girl in Green is billed as a catch-22 for the 21st century, which I'm sold right there. And uh, this is a war novel that subverts the form because the action takes place once the treaties are signed and peace has been called for. It turns out, though, that peace can look a lot like war. In Derek B. Miller's hands, war and peace are both brought to life with genuine warmth, humor, and humility. And this is what will make The Girl in Green appealing to a wide range of readers, whether we're talking about political junkies, veterans, men, women, great readers, uh, general readers of great fiction that like memorable characters, fast-paced plot, smart, sharp writing. Derek Miller is a natural-born storyteller. He's also an international relations expert. Mm -hmm. um, and as the director of the Policy Lab and a senior fellow with the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research and a person with a PhD in international relations from the University of Geneva, amongst many other credentials, he has a thorough understanding of war and foreign policy that lends authenticity and finesse to every paragraph. Uh, so again, that is The Girl in Green by Derek B. Miller, billed as a modern-day Catch-22. Um, so let's go talk about audiobooks a little bit, because I, I, uh, the, the year is the next year of audiobooks. Like We talk about audiobooks, we talk about it growing. And yet we see when we look at the Pew studies that things, the number of people who have listened to one audiobook has stayed, you know, it's up a little bit, but it's stayed largely the same. And what we've been referring for that is that people who do get hooked on audiobooks then listen to a bunch. Um, because Audible, at least, says that they're seeing a bunch of growth in the number of hours listened. And we talked about the weaseliness kind of of that metric, especially when you have no referent for it. But anyway, um, at least anecdotally, what we've seen is people that get hooked on audiobooks do get hooked on them. I use that language meaningfully, mm -hmm. that it becomes a meaningful part of their life. And I've, I don't I don't know if I've, I, I'm too cozy to go into a real rant about Audible. I love Audible. They're sponsor of the show. Disclaimer. I use them. I'm a subscriber. But I do think that the pricing stuff, like we say with the Kindle and paperback situation, I think audiobook pricing is a real problem. And it's one I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it, it I, I caught it again. Cause I actually, when you're an audible member, audible members can get audiobooks from audible at a different price. Like you get, you know, member pricing like Costco or something, I guess. I don't know how to think about it. Whereas you were not a member. So the one that caught my eye was the book that came out. I think it came, the fireman come out this year, Joe. Hill? Uh, yeah. This year? Early this year, mm -hmm. early this year. And I saw it, um, the, as the list price is 46 bucks for an, an audiobook version of the fireman. And that's not even like the 100 CD case, which at least looks like something that could cost Right, that's bucks. just digital. That's the digital download. And I know that you need to, you know, you, it's another production. You get someone in a room for a couple days, you have an engineer and blah, blah, blah. I know that's all true. But 46 bucks, that's the sticker price. You know, that that's the sucker's price, I guess, right? That's, a, that's what my daddy's called, sticker price, sucker's price. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Or it's like buying, it's like going in to have surgery without insurance. Like you just get jobbered and good if you don't, you know, like, mm-hmm. so this, but if you're a member, it's 32 bucks, which still seems crazy or it's one credit. And then they, to get you into the plan, like I'm on the one month, one credit per member, uh, one credit per month plan, which is 1495 a month. So I could get it for my one credit for 1495. So I've already gone down almost, well, more than 66% in price, but then if I buy a whole year's of credits, 24 credits from Audible all at one go, I can get them for $9.95 per credit. So essentially, I can get the firemen for 80% off if I bought buy all up front. Which, and I know what they're doing here. This is gamification and this mm-hmm. is recurrent subscription and membership. But I think this kind of price fungibility and lack of transparency, and then you get Audible deals for $2.99 for a book. Like the e- ebooks have the same problem too. Well, it costs us just as much to make an audiobook. Oh, but by the way, buy this one for one ninety nine. Like right. that's I don't understand. So, but I like I understand the pricing, and I think Audible is also maybe in a little bit of an innovator's dilemma situation where they're the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the digital audiobook distribution world, and they're making a lot of money. We don't know. Amazon doesn't break it out. Um, we know from how you, you've heard on our show, and they spend a lot of money on advertising, trying to get people into the subscription system, which seems to be very lucrative. And if you're a listener, it's a good deal. But the friction going from someone who doesn't listen to audiobooks to ponying up 20 bucks a month for an audio, for audiobook subscription seems like a pretty steep curve in adoption process. You know, like there's a lot of commitment and something you don't know about. So that's one thing I think that might be putting, tamping down the growth of audiobooks on the whole. Not about profits of them, because I'm sure they're maximizing for profit. But in terms of penetration into the world of books and reading and growing the market of listeners, I feel like this pricing structure is a real problem. I mean, what what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think it's really clear that what Amazon is trying to do with these audible prices when you're talking about a floppity jillion dollars for mm-hmm. one audiobook credit is really or for one audiobook by itself is just to push people to get the credit, um, to become audible members, to get the credit. And that's that sweet, delicious recurring monthly revenue. Yeah. MMR. MRR. Yeah. yeah, And they want it just like your gym wants it, where they hope that you'll pay the monthly thing and actually never use the service that you'll never, you know, trot yourself in there and get on the treadmill that you'll never actually download the content. You'll just keep paying them the dollars because your credit card is set to do it and you don't think about it and humans (laughs) are lazy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or you'll think, Oh, I should cancel my Audible membership. And then you, you know, will take six months to do it. And in that six months time, they'll have made another hundred bucks off of you. So that's, I think that's what they're hoping that you will do. And though those crazy high one audiobook prices are intended to make you do that math. And it's that gamification and choice architecture that you're talking about of, well, I could get the fireman by itself for like $42, 49. Yeah. Or I could get, you know, five months of credits for that month. And, get, and so why not do that? Especially then then I might get hooked and then I'll have a variety. And they do have that great thing where you can return an audiobook if you don't like it yeah. for any reason. It, it enables you to sell yourself the thing that they want you to buy. Um, yeah. But it does it does lead to this, like, I think distrust, um, because how could a thing that they're willing to sell me as a member, that that differential is so big, um, so that you can big. get, that you could get the one credit for fourteen ninety five and get that book for fourteen ninety five if you're willing to be a member. But if you're not willing to be a member, it's three times as much. 
Um, yeah, it, it does seem it does seem insane. And so uh, you can tell what Audible wants to sell you is subscription. I think if you do are into audiobooks, I still think an you know Audible is a great deal. Even if even you know you you want a little bit of a break for a subscription, but I'm listening to at least one audiobook a month, so I don't need a thirty dollar break right. on my audiobook. I just want a little bit of a break because I'm gonna you know I want to be rewarded for being a repeat customer. And I think a lot of us understand. Mm-hmm you know, rewards cards and things like that are all built on that same principle or airline miles or whatever. It's like you, you, we want to, we want you to stay with us because you build up some, you know, false scarcity, you know, points, whatever. And then you can expend that false scarcity to, you know, get a little extra. So it basically comes out to a very spread out discount, but this one is they clearly don't, are they're not interested in selling eBooks for 1995 a pop. That's not their business model because they clearly could. Right. Um, they're interested in getting us into subscriptions. And again, I think as a subscriber and someone who listens to audiobook, that's that's fine. But I think if if the industry that feels like the technology there and the interest is there, that you know, audiobooks are a place for readers to spend more time reading, or even people who don't spend as much time reading like to to consume and buy and listen and, and hear the stories and books and the, the experiences books have to offer. There is a fissure there between market penetration and profit. Um, and since Audible is in the catbird seat, they control what that story is for now. Um, so I don't know, because I'm looking at Barnes & Noble right now. What does it cost to buy the farm in there? It's forty two seventy, And there's no other option. Like, mm-hmm. They don't have a subscription or anything. Like That's just how much it is. And that's a place where if I'm Barnes & Noble, I'm quaking in my boots. And probably, you know, they're just, who is buying $42 full-priced audiobooks i just don't i just can't see that that's happening very much so and then publishing then i'm i mean then i we also don't know how the the deal like what is what is the publisher getting from audible if i buy 24 credits for a year for audible and i'm spending 9.95 per title a couple bucks yeah versus how much do they get if i spend 46 bucks like i just don't understand it's like it, it's kind of like airline prices where just tell me what the price is and then I'll let me buy it, even if it's higher than it would be like if I got a super fire day after whatever sale. But that that would make me happier than always feeling like I'm getting screwed, mm-hmm. which is kind of how I feel like when I'm buying airplane tickets or um, uh, pants that aren't on sale on Macy's or whatever. But if I know from a subscriber's point of view that I'm getting a deal, but I kind of am more interested in the whole market developing around audiobooks. So I think people would like it to be able to buy an audiobook for about the same price as a hardback. Yeah, um, it's, and they wouldn't have to be a subscriber. That's a pretty good deal, right? It just—it seems to me that these forty-two dollar pricing for an individual audiobook is just a holdover from when you could only get audiobooks as physical objects, right. as either yeah. CDs or tapes. And then it was like, well, this is seventeen CDs, and so of course it costs you eighty-five dollars. Um, yeah, and maybe publishers when we paid twenty-five dollars for one CD. Yeah, we and talked about recently. Yeah. Right. And I'm just kind of suspected that publishers and and you know Audible and Amazon in this case were like, well, people who buy audiobooks are used to paying, you know, a million dollars to get 17 CDs. And so if we even if we drop the price a little bit to give them access to the digital one, it'll still feel better than the price that they were paying to buy those CDs and tapes. And that may have been the case when these first when digital audiobooks first rolled out, but at this point it's like you're not going to sell me 
iTunes is not going to be able to sell me an album for the same price that I would have paid for a CD no. No. in 1999. No. You know, they're just not going to. What it's is like going... 14.99 to buy like a new hot record on iTunes? I don't even know. Is that yeah. what it costs to buy? I yeah. think so. I mean, I'm a like, I'm a Spotify girl to the core. Sure, so I bought but... Lemonade when it came mm-hmm. out, and but I don't remember because I didn't care. It was like Lemonade. I'll whatever. Take my million dollars. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, like fourteen ninety nine for a new album versus what? What did we used to pay for CDs? Like twenty five. I I swear I paid like thirty two ninety nine for Nevermind in like nineteen ninety two. I swear I, remember, I did. I remember like saving my pennies, basically, literally, to buy that um, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness double yeah, disc. And you were, it's like, it's a right. double disc. Oh, yeah. Forget about the double disc. Forget about like <laughs> Appetite for Destruction 2 or something. Right, like. I mean, right. I, was that even out on CD? I don't even, I, I think I may have had that on tape. Um, but yeah, it does seem like this. It's interesting to see Amazon. I mean, I know Audible is a subsidiary of Amazon, and I think they're run relatively independently, like Amazon does with Zappos and some of the other places. But it's interesting to see within the same with the, the story we hear from Amazon is lower the price of ebooks, you'll sell more and there's more there's more pie to split mm-hmm. up if we do it that way. But that is not the tactic taken when they're the dominant leader. You know, when in this industry and there's same company, same parent company, same industry really in, yep. in publishing, and the pricing and strategy is so much different and so much more user hostile. Like Amazon wants to sell ebooks of frontless titles for like seven ninety nine, nine ninety nine. And yet they they will sell you an uh, audiobook at the same price, but there are all these firewalls of subscriptions and discounts and membership levels you have to penetrate to get there. And they can't. I don't think both of those can be right. I don't feel like both of those strategies can be right. Yeah, I don't it, feel like audiobooks are a different enough product than ebooks that a completely different pricing structure is warranted somehow. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me either. And, you know, publishing has the wrinkle that, like, the music industry didn't have. There are two, there have always been two editions of a book. So you get the hardcover and then you have to wait a year for the paperback to come out. And ebooks and audiobooks threw a wrinkle into that process because there was never, like, you could get the special cd but then you waited a year to get the regular yeah. cheaper cd right. and so the I felt think one, disc or something I don't, know, yeah, I don't know like one possible way forward one thing that publishing could do if they want to protect print and the margins that come along with print is get rid of hardcovers um or get rid of paperbacks and mm. put everything or or make both but drop everything at once and like all on one day you can have the premium hardcover experience for $26 you can have mm. the paperback experience for 16.99 you can buy your mm. ebook or your audiobook for 12 um well and- that's a good question though cuz what is I mean, audiobooks, as you brought up a good point, that we are, oh, well, those of us who are over a certain age, I'm sorry to include you that, Rebecca, even though we're well, you're younger I did than just, I am. I just had a birthday, and I am solidly in the mid-30s, so it's fine. Yeah, but I'm <laughs> saying we were used to audio CD cassettes being mm-hmm. expensive. Like, that's a premium yes. product. The question, I guess, maybe now is, what is the premium product? Is it a hardcover, or is it the audiobook? Or is it, you know, or is it some bundled product? Because just by pricing, if you go and wade in and you're looking to buy The Fireman by Joe Hill, 46 bucks for the audiobook, and then it was, I think, $30 for the hardcover because it's a big hardcover, suggests that the audiobook is the premium product where that kind of doesn't make sense to yeah, me to it, some degree. 
It doesn't. You know, it, a thing that we've seen happen with music as MP3s became the yeah. default delivery of music is that folks who really love music or who love a particular album, they're not going to buy this CD as a commemorative. They're buying like the special edition on vinyl so that mm-hmm. they can put it on their shelf in their living room and use that as the like, I love this thing and I have it, but also it displays something about me to the people who come into my home. And we've talked about books doing that for people as well and that there has been panic off and on about like our bookshelves are frozen in time if we just give up buying print yeah. books and start reading only ebooks so it seems to me that you go that route of making the print edition the premium experience or making one of the print editions the premium experience mm-hmm. and then pricing everything else to the general consumer of books um, who just wants to read the thing and they mm-hmm. want to, you know, finish big little lies in paperback and take it to book club, or they just want to listen to the audiobook um, and make, you know, your extra dollars on that core small group of people who will take the fancy object because it connects not just to consuming yeah. the material, but to some piece of their identity. Um, it mm-hmm. seems to me that that's the way to go. I would love to see publishing try, like, let's just get rid of this one-year gap between hardcovers and paperbacks and make all the formats of a thing available on the same day. Like, do that for five years, see mm. what happens, and um, maybe it turns out that like nobody really cares about the hardcover. They're just buying it right now because it's the first way to get a book. Maybe you strengthen paperbacks by doing that and you discover who the core audience is for that, you know, fancy hardcover edition of a thing. I don't know, but it would be an interesting thing to try. Instead, you have the all these confounding factors of like, well, is it that the people just wanted to read the new Dan Brown book, so they bought it in yeah. hardcover? Or is it that they really like hardcovers? And how much are you willing to pay for an ebook or an audiobook? And that you're right, that price differential, like if an alien landed and you were explaining yes. publishing to them and you're like, so you can buy a hardcover for 26 bucks, you can wait a year and save $10. If you want the same story right now and you don't want to pay $26, you could pay $46 to yeah. have a thing you can't, you can't see or hold, but you can listen to. <laughs> it it's so weird to think that the, dig- that the Kindle version of is like $14.99 and sticker and then the audio version is $46. Like that, that make that, that makes my brain hurt just to think about that difference when really the value add is a, a couple of people sitting in a room for a day or two, putting it on it, putting, making an MP3 out of it. Like, it's not like we're making a movie, it's, you know, no. it, it, again, there is some more production. I don't want to, I know that quality matters and it's not easy. Trust me to do that kind of stuff, but, um, it does seem insane. I think, I think that's our show. I think that's audiobooks, audiobook, uh, investigation. I mean, I guess the other thing too, that we is Amazon really going to go this bookstore route, physical mm. bookstore? Speaking of the digital versus print divide, and this is sort of the the uh, the mending of the two sides, or you know, this is sort of bringing the sides together. Of brick and mortar bookstores have held up very well. Um, Barnes and Noble, for all its troubles, is you know still a viable company. Um, but is Amazon just dipping its toe with the full gorilla behind it, or is this something? You know, what is? What are we going to see over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months in terms of physical bookstores from Amazon? Because we've got, we've got a handful of them now. Um, and is this the f- first few drops of a rainstorm or is this just the sprinkling and the, it's going to clear up? I, I think that's one question, too, that I think maybe we might get an answer to that by the end of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to deploy all the stores they'll ever deploy. But if we see an acceleration or continuation of this pace... It seems like that's a future that Amazon's willing to is interested in exploring and just more than explore and uh, settle. Right. That's 
that's just right. not uh, that's a territory we're going to settle, not just wilderness. We're going to to, to nose around and see if there's anything there. Um, so anyway, well, that's our show. Happy 2017, to everybody out there. Happy, Happy New Year to you, Rebecca. It's going to be another big year. Um, well, I think we have a 200th episode coming up in a couple months here. I think we'll do another Ask Us Anything. So uh, start thinking about those questions. You can send them to podcast at bookwrite.com. If you want to, anytime between now and then, uh, you can find show notes for this and other episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at podcast.com slash listen. Thank you to The Girl in Green and to Peerage Audio and to Third Love for sponsoring this show. Thank you um, to you all this year for listening. Really appreciate it. Um, And we'll see you uh, when 2017 is off and cooking for real next year. Have a good one. (laughs) 